Two of the most recognizable figures on cable television have lost their jobs. Today, Fox News issued a terse statement that said it's agreed to part ways with Tucker Carlson, the conservative provocateur host. And CNN is letting go its morning show host, Don Lemon. Our story is coming up on this Monday, April 24th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, President Biden's strategy for his anticipated run for re-election and concerns that recent abortion policies could push women voters away from the Republican Party. The Republican Party has a suburban women problem because they don't seem to understand what women want. More from suburban women in Texas where abortion is nearly inaccessible. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Tucker Carlson is out of Fox News. As NPR's David Folkenflik reports, the network says the star host's final show was last Friday. Fox has uh, said this was mutual decision, but it sure looks like a defenestration uh, forced by Fox. You know, this comes immediately after this huge lawsuit settlement for over three quarters of a billion dollars for defamation from Dominion voting systems, but also this current lawsuit from Carlson's former top booking producer, that is the person who gets guests on the show, who alleged that Carlson's workplace was rife with sexism and harassment. A short time after Fox's announcement, CNN also dropped a bombshell in announcing that it was cutting ties with its veteran anchor and host, Don Lemon. NPR's Joe Hernandez has that story. Don Lemon tweeted that he was stunned when his agent told him he'd been, quote, terminated by CNN. The 17-year veteran of the news outlet said he expected management to tell him directly. In a statement, however, CNN said Lemon was offered a chance to meet with network executives, but didn't. In an earlier statement, CNN thanked the anchor for his contributions. Earlier this year, Lemon was sidelined for several days after remarking on his show that Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who is 51, isn't, quote, in her prime. The incident sparked broader criticism of his behavior toward female colleagues on air. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. The United Nations has relocated hundreds of staff members and their families from Khartoum and other locations in Sudan. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.N. Secretary General is warning that the conflict in Sudan is threatening to destabilize the entire region. As the U.N. and many countries pull their staff out of Sudan, Secretary General Antonio Guterres is trying to reassure the people of Sudan that they're not being abandoned. Let me be clear. The United Nations is not leaving Sudan. Our commitment is to the Sudanese people in support of their wishes for a peaceful and secure future. Sudan is one of Africa's largest countries and rich in minerals. Guterres warns that the conflict between two rival generals vying for power could engulf the whole region and beyond. And he's urging Security Council members to do what they can to pull Sudan back from the edge of the abyss. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Pakistan's responding to two deadly blasts at a counterterrorism police facility in a northwestern province. Officials say at least 50 lives were lost. There were no immediate claims of responsibility for this attack, but it's reportedly similar to previous attacks claimed by the Pakistani Taliban. The Associated Press reports images in the aftermath of the explosion show bloodied victims being carried into a local hospital, as well as debris from vehicles torn apart in the blast. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are spearheading a national campaign that calls for the overhaul of the U.S. Supreme Court. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. Senators Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley helped launch a 20-day bus tour today. It calls for passage of bills to reform the court, including ones to expand it to 13 members and impose a code of ethics on the justices. Citing recent articles about alleged ethics disclosure improprieties involving Justice Clarence Thomas, Markey says the court is broken. Our most fundamentally held freedoms are under siege, and it will only get worse. We must take action now to rebuild an expanded, fair, and ethical Supreme Court. Markey says the American people have lost faith and respect for the court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is applauding the appointment of Patrick Lavin as the chief safety officer for the Massachusetts Department of Transportation. Governor Healy named Lavin to the post today. He held similar roles for transit systems in Washington, D.C. and New York City. On Radio Boston today, Mayor Wu said it's key to have someone whose job is to improve the MBTA's safety record. Safety is the foundation of people having any sort of trust in, in being in being willing to come and ride the T. And so we've had far too many incidents in the last several months and years that just give people that extra sense of pause. Lavin will be in charge of safety issues for all modes of transportation in the state, including rail, bus, and highway. He starts in two weeks. And the man accused of crashing an SUV into an Apple store in Hingham last year has pleaded not guilty in Plymouth Superior Court. The 53-year-old Bradley Ryan faces charges, including second-degree murder. Today in court, prosecutors say that he accelerated up to 60 miles an hour and did not apply the brakes before the crash. The collision killed Kevin Bradley, who's a construction worker. Rain is free on bail. Today, the court ruled that he must not operate a motor vehicle and must wear a GPS monitor when he awaits trial. He claims that his foot had been stuck on the accelerator. 58 degrees now, kind of breezy out there, but a nice late afternoon. Tonight, isolated showers before 10 o'clock, patchy fog, lots of clouds overnight, lows about 43. Tomorrow, scattered showers in the afternoon, mostly cloudy, about the mid-50s. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Not one, but two of the top stars in cable news are out. Here's what Fox News announced about its best-known host earlier today. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. Then, not even an hour later, CNN said it was parting ways with morning anchor Don Lemon. NPR media correspondent David Volkenflik is sprinting to keep us up to date on all of this, and he joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, let's start with Fox News. I mean, it's the most watched cable network. We're arguably talking about its biggest star here. What are they saying about Carlson's departure exactly? Not much beyond what you heard Harris Faulkner say there just moments ago in your introduction. Uh, They, you know, thank him for his time there. They're saying that uh, his last show was Friday, that uh, there'll be a rotating uh, series of Fox personalities filling in at 8 p.m. To give you an idea 
of how big a surprise this was. Mm -hmm. He said, I'll see you Monday uh, to his viewers at the end of his sign off last week. And then today, moments before Faulkner made that announcement to Fox's viewers, they were promoting his show tonight. (laughs) So then why is this happening? Do we know? And do we know why right now? Well, look, I think it's fair to note that this happens basically six days after this epic three quarters of a billion dollar settlement with uh, an election tech company called Dominion Voting Systems Mm -hmm. uh, for defamation. But Carlson, while he featured in that lawsuit, wasn't by any means the worst offender there. In fact, uh, he had real contempt for uh, former President Trump, who was peddling a lot of these lies of election fraud back in 2020. Documents show he's withering contempt for his colleagues, for Trump. Uh, There is another lawsuit that may be more relevant. It's filed by his former chief booker that is a producer who brings guests on the show. Her name's Abby Grossberg. She alleged that his workplace for his show was rife with sexism, rife with misogyny, that she was paid less because she was a female. An executive acknowledged that, uh, that Nancy Pelosi was depicted in a sexist way. And she said that he used a vulgar epithet, like the most, I think, vile epithet you can use for a woman in describing one of Trump's key allies, Sidney Powell. And let me say, although it was a shocking term, I wasn't totally surprised by that. I had heard him use this term getting off a van at the Republican National Convention in 2016. I said to to Carlson, Tucker, what are you doing? And he said, what? She is. It was about someone else. I was it was pretty appalled in the moment. So what's Abby Grossberg's response to Carlson's firing? Uh, Her lawyer says uh, that this is a vindication of everything that she has alleged uh, and that this is an important move towards justice and that she is uh, she is right to have made these allegations against Carlson as well as against Fox News, which she said pressured her, her it, its legal team had pressured her not to acknowledge uh, the environment in which she felt she was working <laughs> at Fox. <laughs> I, I would say I reached out to Carlson for comment as well, as well as some of our colleagues and that we have not heard back from him. He has okay. not made any public comment. Okay, let's turn real quick to CNN and Don Lemon. He is a longtime, well-known name at the network. He used to have his own primetime show. And today, Lemon, he tweeted that he was stunned by the news that he no longer had a job there. What led to CNN's decision? Do we know? Well, we don't know precisely what the predicate was, but we sure have a whole lot of breadcrumbs that led to this moment. Uh, You had uh, last year, uh, late last year, a number of instances in which it was seen that Lemon behaved uh, in a demeaning and belittling way towards women. He then made a comment uh, towards uh, Nikki Haley, the Republican presidential candidate, saying she was past her prime. He was asked to undergo sensitivity training. He's been such a star. He saw himself as the star of the morning show in the morning. And ultimately, CNN is asserting himself itself over what had been one of its most important figures. That is NPR's David Folkenflik. Thank you so much, David. You bet. On April 25th, 2019, Joe Biden made a long-awaited announcement. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Now the president is widely expected to mark the four-year anniversary of that moment with a repeat announcement tomorrow, officially declaring his run for re-election in 2024. Some of the challenges for his campaign may feel familiar, but there is no denying how different this will be from 2020. Evan Osnos covered that 2020 run extensively for his book, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. He's also a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thanks, Melissa. When you think about this upcoming 
presumed campaign by Joe Biden. Uh, What do you expect the main case will be that he will be making for a second term? Well, I think you should expect him, as presidents do in a moment like this, to tout some of the things that they've done well. You're going to hear him, I expect, talk about unemployment, which is at a very low level, some of the lowest in decades. And of course, they've had legislative wins, things like combating climate change or reducing drug prices. But I think you're also going to hear one big message, which is about what he describes as finishing the job, which is sort of a code for saying, look, we have passed some bills, but we have a very polarized political atmosphere and they could be rolled back. Which is interesting because four years ago, Joe Biden said he would be a transition candidate. What did he mean by that? Yeah, I think a lot of people took that to mean he was signaling that he would only run for one term. I think if you actually talk to him and his advisors about it at the time, what they said was that we would open this administration up to a more diverse roster of talent in terms of race, in terms of gender. And if you look at the numbers, that is what they've done. It is more diverse than the last two administrations. If you look at the judges that they have proposed, that does not address the issue that a lot of people are concerned about, and that is his age. And what he has said to people is, watch me and decide for yourself. And I think people will be watching and making a judgment about whether they think he has the vigor and the energy for this. And important to note that this will be a very different campaign than in 2020, which was in the COVID years. This will be much more on the ground, a lot more travel, a lot more face-to-face interactions. Yeah, that was really a campaign like we've never had before. I mean, he did a lot of it from the back porch, from the basement. That was easier on him in some respects. You can control things more easily, obviously. You can retake your videos. But it also deprived him of one of the things that has made him a successful politician, which is retail politics. I mean, he is known in the business for having this inexhaustible appetite for the handshake, for talking to people one-on-one. And I think what you should expect is that they're going to use the apparatus of the presidency to get him out into the world in visible ways, but controllable ways, so that it's not quite as grueling as a full-fledged campaign. When you think about a potential matchup between President Biden and the former president, Donald Trump, what do you think the Biden camp would need to focus on if that does come to pass? Well, I can tell you what a lot of Americans will say to that, which is, ugh. I think people felt like the 2020 campaign was pretty grueling and they wanted to see some new faces. But there is an inescapable reality that Donald Trump, as of today, is the leading Republican frontrunner. And Joe Biden is the only person who has ever beaten him in an election. And then, in effect, and his administration will tell you as much, they felt like they beat him again in 2022 in the midterms. So I think that one of the challenges for him is going to be signaling to Democrats, look, I know that you're ready for a new generation, but first, we have to get past what has become this persistent and inescapable fact of our political lives, and that is Donald Trump. And in terms of issues that you think President Biden will be centering in his campaign? I'm thinking about, obviously, the economy, abortion, gun violence. How do those play into into his strategy, do you think? In the midterm elections in 2022, there was a really interesting lesson learned, which is that even though a lot of the pundits and the public were saying they should be talking about the economy, talking about inflation, that in fact, Americans were concerned about real threats to democracy and about the threat to abortion rights. I think fundamentally, you're going to hear him make the case that what the Republican Party has become at the moment is more extreme than Americans are comfortable with, even conventional Republican voters. And I think running beneath this 
announcement by Joe Biden is him saying to people, let's remember just what it was like under a Trump presidency. That's Evan Osnos. He is staff writer at The New Yorker and author of the 2020 book, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Evan, thanks so much. You're welcome. When North American actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney bought a fifth division soccer team in Wales two years ago, its fans were hoping for a Hollywood moment. After the team won on Saturday, they got one. Wrexham are promoted. They have their storybook ending. That's right. The club Wrexham secured promotion to a higher league of English soccer. Next season, they'll play in the fourth division for the first time in 15 years. Here's McElhenney after the match. Well, I think we can hear how it feels to the town, and that's what's most important to us. I think this is a moment of catharsis for them and celebration, and for us to be welcomed into their community and to be welcomed into this experience has been the honor of my life. In 2021, the actor known for the TV show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia paired with Ryan Reynolds to acquire one of the oldest soccer clubs in the UK. They filmed their journey in the docuseries Welcome to Wrexham. McElhenney described it to NPR's Michelle Martin last year. I just felt a kindred spirit to them. And I thought, man, if I could tell their story correctly and honor and respect them, I think I could get people to watch it all over the world. And that seems to be the case. In order to bring their team up from the depths of English soccer, the new owners needed to upgrade the roster. Among the players they brought in was a previously retired top-level goalkeeper turned media personality named Ben Foster. You don't get many of these moments. I think this is my third promotion in my whole 20-year career, and it feels so damn good. At the age of 40, the ripe old age of 40, that was about as good as it gets. Genuinely, that means so much to me. This may only be the start for Wrexham's new owners. They hope to eventually be promoted three more divisions all the way up to the Premier League. Now that would be a Hollywood ending. (laughs) You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR is All Things Considered. A Chinese diplomat causes an uproar as he falsely claims some countries that were once part of the Soviet Union do not have effective status under international law. And coming up next, authorities are trying to track down more than 2,000 people who may have bought fake nursing degrees in Florida and are now working in the field. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. A mixed Monday closing on Wall Street. The Dow rose two tenths of a percent today. S&P gained nearly one tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq ended up losing ground, almost three tenths of a percent. Santander Bank plans to close 16 branches in Massachusetts. The Boston Business Journal reports five of the branches will be in Boston, including Downtown, Back Bay, the North End, the South End, and Brigham Circle. Officials with the bank say the closures are the result of more customers turning to online banking. The journal reports Santander will have about 150 branches left in the state after the shutdowns. It's 419. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. Clouds and sunshine taking turns this afternoon. Clouds thicken tonight down to about 43 degrees for a low. Tomorrow overcast for the most part during the day. Not a lot milder than today's bench. Should still be in the mid-50s. Right now, 56 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. In Florida, more nursing schools are under investigation in connection to a $100 million scheme to sell fake nursing diplomas. Federal investigators initially zeroed in on three schools, and now the state is looking into seven others. As Peter Hayden reports, officials in all 50 states are working to track down thousands of allegedly fraudulent nurses. Inside a hospital room, a patient has got a huge gash on her forehead and blood trickling down into her left eye. What's happening is a simulation. The patient is a high-tech mannequin, and she's surrounded by a half-dozen third-year nursing students in navy blue scrubs. Uh, Students, say hi. Hello. This is a typical day at the Clinical Skills Simulation Center at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. For more than four decades, this public institution has been training nurses in the science of caring and treatment. Cindiana Echeverry is an emergency room nurse and the assistant director of this lab. She says these simulations are one tool educators use to equip these future nurses with the skills they'll need to do the job. Inserting catheters to get urine, um, blood draws, something as simple as opening a box and pulling the fluid. If they don't see it, they've never done it. For decades, nursing students have attended highly regarded and board-certified schools like FAU. But thousands of other nurses now practicing around the country didn't do it. As in, they didn't go to nursing school. No classrooms, no clinicals, no nothing. According to federal investigators, they just bought fake nursing degrees instead for around $15,000 each then use those credentials as a shortcut to obtain state nursing licenses. The feds say more than 2,100 fraudulent nurses may be working in the U.S. So far, they've been located in nearly a dozen states. Markenzie LaPointe is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. When we talk about a nurse's education and credentials, shortcut is not a word we want to use. In January, the Justice Department charged 25 people in five states connected to the alleged scheme. The investigation found evidence that between 2016 and 2021, the defendants sold more than 7,600 phony diplomas from three formerly accredited South Florida nursing schools. 
Siena College and Sacred Heart International Institute in Broward County, and the Palm Beach School of Nursing. So this is it, 2695 North Military Trail in West Palm Beach. It is a strip mall. There's a wig store, Ambulance. a little cell phone shop, a Hebrew Pentecostal church, and a Dollar General. And there's also a little chiropractor shop right in the corner. This was the home of the former Palm Beach School of Nursing. Court documents show that in 2021, an undercover FBI employee went into an office in Fort Lauderdale and was offered an associate's degree in the science of nursing for $16,000. The diploma and transcripts arrived less than two weeks later from Palm Beach School of Nursing, showing a 3.4 grade point average. To have someone that has never attended nursing school taking care of you or your loved one is terrifying. It's truly a public safety issue. This is Nurse Erica. She's a registered nurse and a vocal advocate for nurses on social media. We're withholding her last name because she's been the target of harassment. The three South Florida schools are now closed, and the defendants face up to 20 years in prison. Of the 7,600 students, federal authorities say purchased fake nursing credentials, more than a quarter were able to obtain state medical licenses. Now there's a nationwide search underway to find them. The feds know who they are. Authorities gave their names to all 50 state boards of nursing. Now it's their job to investigate and take action against any of the nurses in their states. I compared notes with Nurse Erica. 26 in Delaware. One in Kentucky. Multiple in Texas. 22 in Georgia. Arizona has admitted to about 10. And the list goes on. Federal prosecutors say the three Florida schools were once properly certified and graduated students using legitimate training. But at some point, according to authorities, those schools began accepting payments in exchange for backdated nursing credentials without a student stepping foot into a classroom. More than 900 New York nurses who studied at the Florida schools have been asked by state officials to prove their credentials. A lot of states, in particular Florida, are being radio silent about this entire issue, and that is very concerning. The Florida Department of Health did not respond to multiple interview requests for this story. Washington state has been transparent about its search. We knew that this was large. We knew that it was sophisticated, and we knew that we needed to take action. Paula Meyer is executive director of the Washington State Nursing Care Quality Assurance Commission. It identified 150 people, either nurses or applicants, who had graduated from the three Florida schools. Some of those people had legitimate degrees. But with others, there were red flags especially with some of the transcripts. Some of them didn't have the seal. Some of them didn't have the address of the school. Some of them had different fonts on them. So the commission has been investigating each case. And that takes time. So far in Washington, 17 nurses have had their licenses rescinded. In Georgia, five nurses under scrutiny say they plan to fight to keep their licenses. They contend their credentials are legitimate. Attorney Hannah Williams, a nurse herself, is representing them. 
My clients wish to be differentiated from individuals who fraudulently obtained their degrees, and they are hopeful that there will be a fair investigation that allows them to tell their side of the story. There is one group of people in a mighty rush to rip the Band-Aid off this whole scandal. Nurses. The folks that bought those nursing degrees should go to jail. People need to go to jail. Straight to jail. Immediate jail. That's a sample of the exasperation nurses posted in videos to social media. Federal authorities say the students who allegedly bought diplomas won't be criminally charged. Regina Callion is a registered nurse in Ohio and a nurse educator. The public for decades have respected us, have valued us to be honest and truthful. We're the top most trusted profession. Nobody could touch us. That has changed. Why? Because the public now has this idea that a lot of nurses take shortcuts. Officials indicate many of the students that purchased degrees in the alleged scheme were Haitian-American or African immigrants. Are you the real nurse or are you the fake nurse? Somebody did say that to me. Dr. Gwen Randall is a nurse anesthetist in South Florida and a member of the National Black Nurses Association. She says transparency by state boards of nursing could help allay some of that patient anxiety. Federal authorities say the investigation has found no harm caused by any suspect nurses to patients so far. For NPR News, I'm Peter Hayden in West Palm Beach, Florida. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The retailer Bed Bath & Beyond is going out of business. The chain once dominated the home goods market, but it's become rudderless and broke. What lies beyond? Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. In the forecast, sunshine and clouds, depending on where you are this afternoon and evening, should be breezy overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, scattered showers, high temperatures in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. And Certipro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certipro.com. That's Certa with a C. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, reporting in The Globe and The New York Times details a top Boston chef's alleged abuse of workers. Barbara Lynch is the first chef specifically named for abuse since the public conversation started in earnest a few months ago. Will this be a first step for restaurants across the city? That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Africa, there's an exodus of people fleeing from Sudan's capital, Khartoum, and other areas amid a brief ceasefire between the Sudanese army and a powerful paramilitary group there. The U.S. and other foreign governments airlifted hundreds of their diplomats and staff to safety over the weekend as Sudan's two rival generals are vying for control of the country. Pentagon spokesman General Patrick Ryder says about 16,000 Americans, many with dual citizenship, remain. U.S. Africa Command and the Department of Defense continue to work closely with State Department, which has the lead for helping American citizens wishing to depart Sudan. Those efforts include providing intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities to observe potential land routes, 
out of Sudan and detect threats and positioning naval assets off the coast of Sudan should they be needed. The Pentagon has confirmed that one naval ship is currently stationed off the coast of Sudan and another has been deployed. Meanwhile, in Alabama, funeral services were held today for one of the victims of a mass shooting at a birthday party in the small town of Dadeville from Troy Public Radio. Kyle Gassett reports. Flags are at half-mast in front of Dadeville High School in honor of 18-year-old Phil Stavius Dowdle. A line stretched around the building with many dressed in black and gold, school colors Dowdle wore as a football player. The high school senior was one of four victims killed at a Sweet 16 birthday party earlier this month, where 32 were also injured. Police have arrested six suspects and charged each with four counts of reckless murder. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Dadeville, Alabama. It's earnings week on Wall Street, and stocks finished mixed today with the Dow up about 66 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was down, lost about 35 points, or two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's been more than 24 hours since an Acton family has heard from a relative trapped in Sudan with her 18-month-old daughter. The two were stuck there amid the fighting between that country's army and a paramilitary force. WBR's Amy Sokolo has more. Rebecca Winter's sister-in-law Trillian Clifford moved to Sudan's capital, Khartoum, with her one-year-old daughter Alma in the fall to teach at a school. Winter says internet and cell service are down across Sudan. She has not heard from Clifford in more than 24 hours, as she and Alma shelter in place and ration food. Winter is urging the U.S. government to evacuate its citizens. Today, the White House said it's begun helping facilitate land evacuations of Americans from Khartoum. Winter says that's, quote, wonderful news and hopes it means help is getting closer for Trillian and Alma. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is looking to expand the free fare MBTA bus program. As of now, three bus routes, the 23, 28, and 29 through Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan are free for riders through February of next year. Mayor Wu tells WBR's Radio Boston today the city is talking with Cambridge officials to expand the program to include the number one bus that connects the cities. Public transportation really should be a public good that as fundamental as access to education without any financial barriers for everyone, access to open space without any financial barriers. We need people to be able to get where they need to go as well. Wu says that while conversations are underway, any expansion of the free fare bus program would require the MBTA's approval. Massachusetts Attorney General's office says it's aware of a website that claims to represent a fake university in the state and is reviewing what actions the office may take. A website for the so-called Massachusetts Central University recently appeared online. There is no such school. The office says a previous version of the scam appeared last year. The attorney general shut that website down with a cease and desist letter. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. Looks pretty nice out there, at least in the Boston area. Clouds and sunshine both this afternoon. Overnight tonight, clouds should thicken. Temperatures down around 43 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, overcast for most of the day. Not too much milder than today. Still in the mid-50s. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates 
Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. China's ambassador to France made some pretty big waves over the weekend with remarks in an interview on French TV. That is Ambassador Liu Xiaoye. He's saying that former Soviet countries do not have, quote, real status under international law because there's no international agreement affirming them as sovereign countries. China's foreign ministry tried to walk the comments back today because they don't align with the country's official position. But the remarks have sparked sharp criticism and raised some tough questions for Europe. We're joined now by NPR's John Ruich, who covers China. Hey, John. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, so I don't get it. The Soviet Union collapsed like three decades ago. Why would Lu say those countries don't have true sovereignty? Yeah, it's a little puzzling. Lu's remarks came in answer to a question on the talk show about the status of Crimea, which has been occupied by Russia for nine years. He said the territory's status depends on how you view the problem and noted that Crimea had historically been Russian territory. Then he went on to make his remarks about the sovereignty of the post-Soviet states. You know, China's foreign ministry, as you said, essentially contradicted him on Monday. A spokeswoman said China was among the first countries to recognize those former Soviet states and uh, has respected their sovereignty all along. It's worth noting this guy, Lu, he's made some pretty controversial remarks before. He's an iconic wolf warrior diplomat, uh, but he's very senior. He's a seasoned diplomat. He speaks very good French and presumably knows his talking points. Right. Well, what's been the wider reaction so far to all of this? French President Emmanuel Macron, who was actually just in Beijing a few days back, uh, said it's not the place of a diplomat to use this kind of language. In Ukraine, an advisor to the president's office said it was strange to hear a, quote, absurd version of Crimea's history coming from China, hmm. which takes its history very seriously. Uh, the former Soviet, uh, uh, so the former Soviet Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, were outraged and summoned Chinese diplomats. Uh, Lithuania's foreign minister raised another key point. He tweeted, quote, if anyone is still wondering why the Baltic states don't trust China to broker peace in Ukraine, here's a Chinese ambassador arguing that Crimea is Russian and our country's borders have no legal basis. I mean, that seems like a major issue here, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's not just the Baltics that are mistrustful. You know, this puts China right back in the spotlight on Ukraine. Beijing officially claims it's neutral in the conflict, but critics say it's firmly on Russia's side. So this is presumably not the kind of message that Beijing would want a top diplomat in Europe to convey. Uh, I talked with Noah Barkin a bit about this. He's a senior advisor at the research firm The Rhodium Group, and he follows China-Europe relations. He says there will be fallout. These comments are going to lead to questions in Europe about whether China can play a constructive role in the war in Ukraine, whether uh, Xi Jinping will be willing to lean on Vladimir Putin to bring about some form of peace. Interesting. So how big of a setback is this for China in Europe, you think? 
Well, it comes at a time when some uh, in Europe were taking steps to try to stabilize pretty rocky ties with China. You know, many in the West saw Macron's visit to Beijing earlier this month in that light. Uh, and it's something of a diplomatic coup for China, right, which is trying to drive a wedge between Europe and the U.S. Uh, there was a sort of you know, growing hope that China might be able to be persuaded to work with <laughs> Europe on Ukraine and more broadly <laughs> after a period of tension. But Liu's comments just raise fresh questions about China's intentions and All give right. critics ammunition. That is NPR's John Ruwich. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Suburban women voters have become an increasingly important block for both political parties in the U.S. Suburbs across the country have been shifting politically, and their voters have become harder to predict. But recent abortion policies could move those voters, especially women voters, more squarely away from the Republican Party. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. It's a beautiful Saturday morning in suburban Texas. Tiffany Sheffield is taking her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter to the park. Hey, can you say hi? Say my name is Shiloh. I'm Sheffield describes herself as, for the most part, a conservative Christian. She lives in Round Rock, which is just north of Austin. It's one of the many suburbs in Texas that's been trending more Democratic in the past several years. For Sheffield, abortion is not just a political issue. It's a moral one. She says it's not something she'd ever consider for herself, but, Sheffield says, she does have a problem with the government interfering in these kinds of decisions. That is completely up to her and there's no judgment or no no right for me to tell her otherwise. Um, I do think that sometimes when the government gets a little too, they step in a little too much, we end up having a lot of other social issues. Texas has had some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country for years now. But shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Republican lawmakers in the state enacted a near total ban on the procedure, with very narrow exceptions only to save the life of the pregnant person. Sheffield says she supports some restrictions on the procedure, but she does not agree with a total ban. I think there are extenuating circumstances, um, like people always say, like rape or, you know, 14-year-old cannot have a child. Polling shows a majority of Americans disagree with policies that outlaw the procedure, which has become a political liability for Republicans. And their biggest challenge could be with women like Tiffany Sheffield, who live in the suburbs. Rachel Vinman co-hosts a podcast called The Suburban Women Problem, which she says is a reference to South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Who, prior to the 2018 midterms, said the quiet part out loud that the Republican Party has a suburban women problem. And they did, and they do, and it kind of keeps getting bigger and bigger because they don't seem to understand what women want. Vinman says the Republican Party's backing of policies that shut out access to both surgical and medication abortions are unpopular among suburban women like her because they go too far. It falls into extremism as a whole. I mean, I was a Republican for a long time. And what used to be part of the conservative movement was this individual responsibility and smaller government. But Vinman says that's changed. She says the party's recent support for cutting off access to one of the two pills used in medication abortions is just the latest example. Rebecca Dean, a political science professor at UT Arlington, says these more extreme policies have also made the issue of abortion more salient. Voters hear about it, and that means they're thinking about it. So there's kind of this weird feedback loop uh, of politicians do things 
that get in the news. And so the thing that they might want to be settled is just more talked about. And so it's top of mind for voters. And then it becomes more problematic for them. Dean says before the Supreme Court decision, suburban women were not as motivated by the issue of abortion. But that's not true anymore. Elizabeth Simas, a political professor at the University of Houston, says she thinks Democrats in particular could have an opening here. It's not always the most solid voting block that the candidates can count on. But I, I think women in general as voters and women who have issues that are going to start hitting their households should not be underestimated by other parties, by either party. Um, so these, these women can be mobilized and it is a strong mobilizing force. And it could mobilize women in particular in states like Texas and across the southern United States where abortion is nearly inaccessible. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Austin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For years, classical music fans have been left behind in the streaming revolution. Finding particular works and recordings has been kind of hit or miss on the major platforms, which were basically built to search for an artist's name and a song title. But NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siolkis reports that Apple is the latest streaming service to take a serious swing at Bach, Beethoven, and Bartok. Say I want to find a great recording of Beethoven's grand and glorious Symphony No. 9. On any streaming platform, I get back hundreds and sometimes thousands of results. Some of them are right on. And some are, well, not exactly what I'm looking for. The first match YouTube pulls up for me, for example, is not a symphony. It's not even music by Beethoven. Instead, it's solo piano music written by Chopin. And if you just can't find a particular recording or piece of music, well, it functionally ceases to exist in the marketplace. Frustrated classical fans were driven to specialty apps and platforms, but they did not reach most consumers. Two years ago, Apple bought a company called Primephonic and built their new service on Primephonic's bones. Fundamentally, the thing about this app is it is trying to do something that has not been done adequately before and do it really well, which is deliver an excellent customer experience, listening experience for classical music lovers. It's made for classical music lovers by classical music lovers. That's Jonathan Gruber, who heads classical for Apple Music. He says that as of launch, his company has more classical music available than any other streaming service. We have a database which has 20,000 composers, more than 100,000 unique works, 300,000 movements, 5 million tracks, 50 million data points in order to make this happen. We reached out repeatedly to Spotify, the biggest platform in music streaming, to ask for their comparable stats, but did not receive any response. Apple Classical isn't perfect. If you use an Android phone, you're still out of luck, at least for now. The much-vaunted metadata listing soloists and other performers is sometimes missing. Apple's curated playlists tilt much more Classical 101 than Deep Dive Delights. And it's a standalone experience, disconnected from the rest of Apple Music. So it's hard for fans who generally listen to other genres to fall down any classical rabbit holes. In the meantime, though, several prominent venues and ensembles seem to be betting on Apple. 
The service features exclusive content from Carnegie Hall, the Berlin Philharmonic, and the London Symphony Orchestra, among others. Can Apple succeed with classical music fans when so many other services have failed? That's an open question, but at least one of the biggest players in streaming is finally paying attention. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. And elsewhere in the program, we'll hear from someone trying to flee Sudan as the fighting there continues. And we'll hear why deals to cease hostilities have not led to a lasting peace. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in the next half hour of WBUR's All Things Considered, the American Library Association announces its annual list of the most challenged and banned books in the U.S. And coming up next, the picture book Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus turns 20 this month. To mark the anniversary, the story's been turned into an opera at the Kennedy Center. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. In sports, no playoff action tonight for the Bruins or the Celtics. Celtics return to action tomorrow at the Garden for Game 5 of their first-round playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. Bruins return to the Garden Wednesday for Game 5 of their series with the Florida Panthers. Both the Celts and Bruins lead their respective series three games to one. No rest for the Red Sox, though. This evening, Chris Sale gets back on the mound for the Sox as they start up the series in Baltimore, 6.35 start time. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Bowery Boston, presenting Gregory Allen Isakoff with the Milk Carton Kids for two nights at Roadrunner on October 21st and 22nd. More at roadrunner.com. The actor Rain Wilson has written a book on the role of spirituality in life's journey, which leads to an obvious question. Why the hell would the guy who played Dwight on The Office be writing a book about spirituality? Rain Wilson's answer tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBMR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. Bed Bath & Beyond is officially going out of business. Store closing sales begin on Wednesday. The home goods giant has outfitted many college dorms and homes with its floor-to-ceiling displays of pillows, curtains, and kitchen gadgets. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports on its downfall. If you've been to Bed Bath & Beyond lately, you've seen the signs. A sparse selection of brands you don't recognize. A cul-de-sac of home decor sitting empty, except for some tired-looking mirrors on sale. I'll be honest, I was taken a bit aback because, like, there were sections that were just missing. Daniel Callahan from Louisville, Kentucky, popped in a few months ago and found it eerie. I remember when... Like the Circuit City closing and the Sears closing, and this kind of had the same feeling to it. He was right. The store closed within weeks. 
Just a decade ago, Bed Bath & Beyond seemed unstoppable, called a category killer for dominating in home goods. Now it enters bankruptcy distraught and turbulent. It's gone through leadership shakeups, failed turnarounds, a rise and crash as a meme stock, all while running out of shoppers and money. Beneath this chaos, the chain has faced a fundamental question. In a world that shops online, swarmed by competitors, where does it fit? Identity crisis is actually, I think, a key word. Beth Grossfeld worked in Bed Bath Marketing for 13 years, until 2019. Back then, the chain had about 1,500 stores, having ballooned from its origins as a New Jersey retailer from the 70s. It survived the Great Recession, outlived its main rival, Linens and Things, then bought Bye Bye Baby, The World Market, online retailer One King's Lane. Its stores had a secret weapon. Local managers got to decide what to stock for their shoppers. It was that floor-to-ceiling, stack them high and watch them fly. It was kind of our motto. You came in, you found what you wanted, and 10 other things. The customers loved it. And then there was the iconic Big Blue coupon for 20% off, which became so stitched into the cultural fabric that the FBI found one in the kitchen drawer of mobster Whitey Bulger. TV show Broad City built a whole subplot around it. Bed Bath & Beyond coupons never expire. They have expiration dates on them. Yeah. To, to throw idiots off. But over time, Bed Bath faced intense competition from Amazon and Target, Wayfair and West Elm. Former officials describe a company lost in search of its niche. It tried to go big on furniture. It started selling jewelry. Its website felt dizzying. Here's former marketing manager Grossfeld. We really were um, going through kind of a crisis of trying to compete with our ever-growing competitors. And never catching up. One of the founders recently told the Wall Street Journal Bed Bath, quote, missed the boat on the Internet. In 2019, activist investors forced out long-running leadership and brought on a Target executive. And he pushed to declutter stores and go all in on private brands, which are more profitable. The timing proved disastrous. Big brands like KitchenAid and Calphalon went missing from Bed Bath shelves right as the pandemic began. The chain missed out on the historic home decorating shopping spree. Soon the company was closing stores and cutting jobs. They've made operational missteps, which have yielded financial missteps. David Silverman tracks retail at Fitch Ratings. The company is at a point where they can't really invest in sort of anything to turn around their fortunes. Bed Bath began warning of a bankruptcy in January. It struggled to pay lenders and suppliers, leading to more empty shelves. Leadership tried every financial Hail Mary, getting lifelines from banks and investors. But now the rescues are running out, and Bed Bath is staring into the great beyond. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. This month marks 20 years since Mo Willems published his first picture book, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. It has sold more than 6 million copies and received a Caldecott honor. But this past weekend, readers got to see and hear a brand new side of the bossy bird. As NPR's Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento reports, the pigeon made his operatic debut at Washington's Kennedy Center. Mo Willems says most of the characters in his children's books are born in an idea garden. He spends years thinking about them, developing them, figuring out the stories they'll be a part of. The pigeon was not that. The pigeon showed up one day while I was trying to write a great picture book, this before I'd ever been published, and the pigeon said, don't, don't write this. It's not any good. You should write about me. 
Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus was about a pigeon, last name pigeon, first name the, who asks, begs, demands to get a chance to drive a bus while the driver's on break. 20 years on, Willems has taken the pigeon to school, to ride a roller coaster, and now to the opera. I know nothing about opera, and that made it really compelling. And then I discovered that opera and picture books are both about very big emotions. Big emotions, like love. Disgust. And sadness. The performance, titled The Ice Cream Truck is Broken and Other Emotional Arias, premiered over the weekend. It was written in collaboration with singer Renee Fleming. Well, we're definitely not used to this laughter. We're not used to laughter at all, really. There are comedies in opera, but they haven't really been in my repertoire so much. Both Willems and Fleming stressed that they really wanted kids and parents to have fun. One way to do that is to address the audience directly. At one point, multiple pigeons ask, I think the most fun thing was when we actually got to sing and tell the pigeon, no, 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 no. That's Betsy Clausen, who attended the show with her nieces. For us to be able to be part of a brand new world premiere opera was very exciting. Carlos Simon composed the pigeon's aria. With classical music, it can be this element of like, I am singing the song, you will not clap, you will not speak, or you will not do anything. You know, these, these rules that have become part of the genre, well, we want to kind of break those down. That way, they also got to emphasize the pigeon's persuasive skills, which he's been sharpening for two decades now. I asked Mo Willems if he thinks the pigeon has grown up at all during that time. I like how determined the pigeon is, and I think that maybe I see the pigeon now as more determined than obnoxious, so maybe I'm growing. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. 
on the web at theschmidt.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Sunshine and clouds, depending on where you are this afternoon and this evening. Tonight, lots of clouds collecting. Maybe some isolated showers later on. Spotty fog as well. Lows about 43 degrees. Tomorrow, scattered showers. High temperatures in the mid-50s. Could see the sunshine return in full force by midweek with highs near 60. 53 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rival combatants in Sudan have agreed to a three-day ceasefire starting today, brokered by the U.S. Many countries' diplomatic staffs have been evacuated. Many civilians remain in the country. Coming up, a former U.S. special envoy to Sudan on how the U.S. has contributed to the instability. It's Monday, April 24th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, even with mass layoffs hitting tech companies, the number of job openings in IT remains high. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are spearheading a national campaign to overhaul the Supreme Court and strengthen the code of ethics for justices. Our goal to the Supreme Court is simple. Get your house in order or Congress will do it for you. That's Ed Markey. Also, a new poll shows Americans' disapproval of the high court is at a five-year high. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it is actively facilitating the departure of American citizens who want to leave Sudan. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the U.S. does not plan to send peacekeepers to the country. The White House says it's deployed U.S. intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets to support land evacuation routes that are being used by Americans. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, says the Biden administration is also calling for an immediate ceasefire in Sudan as it works to evacuate American citizens. Americans should understand that we will do, uh, go to great lengths to support and facilitate their departure from difficult circumstances, that we will try to protect them from harm as best as we possibly can. But he says there should not be an expectation of a massive military operation to seize an airport or otherwise evacuate people from the country. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Two of the biggest stars of cable TV news are out. NPR's Mary Yang reports on the abrupt departures announced today. Fox News' Tucker Carlson and CNN's Don Lemon. In a stunning move, Fox News announced in a statement that it would part ways with primetime host Tucker Carlson. Moments later, CNN announced in a memo to staff that it has parted ways with anchor Don Lemon. Both stars have been embroiled in scandals in recent months. Carlson was at the center of Dominion Voting System's blockbuster lawsuit against Fox News, which was settled last week for $787 million. Lemon came under fire earlier this year over his behavior with female colleagues on air and for saying Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who is 51, was past her prime. 
Mary Yang, NPR News. In Germany, the latest round of transportation strikes is causing hundreds of flight cancellations as workers at airports in Berlin and Hamburg walk off the job. More from NPR's Rob Smith. Security workers and ground services at both airports are holding a one-day strike amid a wave of labor action by both aviation and rail workers. The union is seeking higher pay for its members to keep up with rapid inflation in Germany. All this comes as Germany has been experiencing a wave of disruptive strikes that have shut down nationwide rail traffic and led to hundreds of canceled flights. The next event, a rail worker strike in several regions of the country, is scheduled for Wednesday. Reporter Rob Smits. The battle over raising the nation's borrowing limit has been on something of a slow burn for the past few months, but in the next several months, things are likely to heat up a bit. That's because the U.S. government ran up against its legal borrowing limit in January. It was con- continuing to operate through what are known as extraordinary measures. Now the clock is ticking toward a possible default on the part of the government if Congress does not intervene. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 66 points. The Nasdaq was down 35 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Bristol County Sheriff Paul Hero says the investigation continues into Friday's uprising at his jail that resulted in tens of thousands of dollars in damage. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, the sheriff says those who led the uprising will face charges. Sheriff Hero says prisoners in two housing units destroyed a control council, blocked entrances with mattresses, poured soapy water on floors to make them slippery, and created makeshift weapons. He says no one was hurt, in part because the four correction officers monitoring the housing unit were able to leave quickly. They were seconds away from being locked in there with the inmates, which would have been a hostage situation. It was really that close. Like it was it's incredible they got out when they did. Haro says leaders of the uprising have been moved to other jails. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Moore Healy announced Patrick Lavin will be the Department of Transportation's chief safety officer. In the newly created role, Lavin will deal with safety issues related to transportation. That includes rail, bus, and highway. Prominent members of the state's congressional delegation say the size of the U.S. Supreme Court must be increased by four justices. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, along with Representative Ayanna Presley, said the court faces a legitimacy crisis and needs to be reformed. Presley says last summer's ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade is one reason why. The Supreme Court is actively undermining our democracy. The court is meant to ensure equal justice under the law, but in its current configuration, the highest court repeatedly overturns the will of the majority of the people. The lawmakers spoke this morning in Boston. They began a nationwide campaign to recruit support for making changes to the court. Those changes include a new code of ethics. A new COVID-19 variant is creeping into New England. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's variant tracker found that 4.6 percent of all COVID cases in the region are now the new Arcturus subvariant. This Omicron offshoot was first detected in January in India. Its properties mean it could spread more quickly, but health experts say there's no indication that it'll lead to more severe cases. And the average price of gas in Massachusetts is now 22 cents higher than it was a month ago. The current average is $3.48 a gallon. AAA says drivers in the area may see falling gas prices sooner rather than later because oil prices fell last week. 
53 degrees now in the Boston area. Tonight should turn mainly cloudy, maybe damp as well. The outside chance of showers lows about 42. Tomorrow, clouds aplenty up in the mid-50s once again. 53 degrees in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Fighting between two warring military parties has turned Sudan's capital Khartoum into a war zone. More than 400 people have died since fighting broke out on April 15th, and people are looking for a way out. We are in the middle uh, between the uh, gunfire on, on both sides. That's Sudanese-American journalist Ismail Kushkush. He told us Friday he was trapped in a building downtown with more than 30 others. The greatest fear that we have at the moment is running out of food and water. Uh, We think we have food and water that will last perhaps for 10 days. Yesterday, on the ninth day, they escaped, as Kushkush told us in an update this morning. This is Ismail Kushkush. We're out of the building. They were out thanks to the building's doorman, who brokered an agreement with the paramilitary soldiers surrounding the building. The um, door person in our building knew some of the soldiers. Before the fighting, they would come and bring uh, their clothes to be washed, uh, so he knew them. The soldiers agreed to provide safe passage, and the residents filed out as a group. After a half-hour walk and a bus ride, Kushkush and a few others are now at an apartment on another side of Khartoum, trying to arrange travel to Egypt. The collapse of talks between the two warring factions, the Sudanese army and the RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, was an utterly predictable outcome. That's what Jacqueline Burns told us based on past negotiations. She's a former advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. One of the biggest problems was that the negotiations prioritized the voices of the armed actors over civilian actors, civil society, women's groups, other people who were genuinely fighting for political reforms and for peace in Sudan. And your essay in today's New York Times is titled... The violence in Sudan is partly our fault, and by our, you are faulting the United States as well as the European Union, the UN, the African Union, among others. What is the role of those interveners? Why are they at fault? So the peace processes in Sudan go back decades. And in these processes, the facilitator's role is to determine who needs to be at the table and the format of the negotiations. And so by continuing to let the armed actors' demands to have an exclusionary process win over, we cut out all the space for civil society and other actors to be able to participate. It does seem to me that there is a a pretty obvious power imbalance, though, in what you're describing. Armed groups have have arms, they have weapons, and civil society, for all of its valid, honorable goals, um, just seems to be uh, disproportionately disadvantaged at the negotiating table. They are. That is true. And I am not denying the complexity of these factors. And 
all of the difficulties when trying to find a formulation of a peace process that is going to work. However, civilian-led transitions are needed if we want actual reform and change in Sudan. The armed actors are not interested in this. And so the international community needs to find ways to help with that power balance, to make sure that we are insisting that their voices are included and are heard. And what would the leverage be for that? That is complicated, of course. Um, I think that there's a range of actions that we could talk about that would be considered formal sanctions, whether they be economic sanctions, whether they be removing them from membership on international organizations or regional organizations. I think that there is more to be done also when it comes to our soft power, right? The more we engage with these actors, the more we give them legitimacy. And that legitimacy does matter. It emboldens them. It makes them think that they are going to get what they want and that they continue these actions. And it also emboldens other actors to put their support behind them. And so right now, there is an impetus here for the international community to help build up the voices of civilian actors who are interested in peace in Sudan and to help get them back on track to a civilian-led transition. And looking forward, do you see that as a a realistic scenario, a civilian-led government in Sudan? Eventually, yes. Unfortunately, I think the media outlook in Sudan is pretty grim. But I do think in the long run, yes, it can happen. And I think it eventually will happen. But I think my overarching point that is the longer the international community continues to appease and provide legitimacy to the armed actors is going to prolong the conflict and prolong how long it takes for us to get to a civilian-led government. I've been speaking with Jacqueline Burns, a former advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. She's now with the think tank, the Rand Corporation. Ms. Burns, thanks so much. Thank you. For decades, Dianne Feinstein has been one of the most popular politicians in California. Now, 89 years old and recovering from a bout of shingles, she's facing calls to resign after missing votes in the Senate. Scott Schaefer from KQED asked California voters about their senior senator's absence. At a children's playground in San Francisco's Mission District, music teacher Thomas Danish takes a break from eating a sandwich to consider Diane Feinstein's career. You know, she's been in the game forever. You have to respect the woman for what she's done. And then what about people who are saying, you know what, you need to resign because you can't go back there and vote right now? Uh, I think that decision's up to her and, and her people and her team. On 24th Street, in the heart of the city's Latin cultural district, Edith Reyes notes the high stakes in Washington right now. She's voted for Feinstein before and thinks she's done an adequate job, but... There's a time for a change, and this may be it, for Diane Feinstein to step down and allow somebody else to take her place. Down the street, Andre Barnes says he's lived in the city a long time, but it's been years since he's even thought about Diane Feinstein. Like when Willie Brown was like a state legislator, you kind of understood what he was doing. He raised money, he got, he got things done. Feinstein, I just don't have a clue. She should go enjoy her life. She's old. Barnes likes Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who could fit the bill if Governor Gavin Newsom fulfills his pledge to name a black woman to the seat. But if you're a Republican in deep blue California like Gloria Ludke of La Quinta near Palm Springs, the problem is much bigger than Feinstein's age. The politics that they have in California suck. 
While Feinstein fell out of favor with many progressive Democrats for being too moderate, to Ludke, she's too liberal. I really don't uh, think much of her. She doesn't do her job. She's just one-sided. Republican Jeff Lau says he thinks there are good reasons for Feinstein to retire. Harder to make decisions when, you know, getting older and it's good to move on to another position. <laughs> on a recent morning at the Rossmore Retirement Community in Walnut Creek, east of Oakland, seniors were playing a vigorous game of pickleball. Inside a nearby clubhouse, three members of the Rossmore Democratic Club mulled over the Feinstein dilemma. At 91, Joyce Brock is older than Feinstein, but she rejects the idea that Feinstein is being treated unfairly or that there's a double standard for older women. I don't think this has to do with gender. Because of my age, I know myself that I'm not as good as I was when I was 85. Her friend Alice Claire King, a relatively young 79, notes that the nearly 40 million people in California need a reliable voice in Washington. As the biggest state in the country, uh, with only two senators, we need her vote. We need a senator who's at full speed and can give his or her all. It's a balance between the agility of youth and the experience of age. That's Amal Molik. Calling on his Indian heritage, he has a nuanced take on Feinstein's age. In the Asian culture, age is regarded as a very great value. Molik seems resigned to the fact that ultimately Feinstein may have to step down, giving Governor Newsom an opportunity to name the next senator. But let us be clear on this. There'll be no voice like Dianne Feinstein, whoever he appoints will have very large shoes to fill. Meanwhile, Feinstein's staff says she'll be back in Washington once her health allows her to travel. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. Every year, the American Library Association releases a list of the top 10 books that people have tried to remove from school and library shelves. But this year, there are 13 titles on the list, and seven of them feature LGBTQ people. NPR's Tilda Wilson reports. For the second year in a row, Maya Kobabe's Genderqueer was the most challenged book. Kobabe talked to NPR in January about their graphic memoir, which details their journey to understanding their non-binary identity. I just kept feeling like I was trying on like clothes that didn't fit. And it was the biggest sort of concern of my specifically teenage years and early 20s was just this like, what am I? Where do I fit in all of this? Kobib says their memoir was met with love and support when it was published in 2019. It didn't receive pushback until two years later. I think what mostly surprised me was, like, the timing of it and then also the level of it. Lessa Kanenyapua Palaya Lazada is president of the American Library Association. She says that challenges to LGBTQ books like Kobib's are part of a trend they've seen over the past couple of years. And the Library Association feels it's important to push back. We know that LGBTQ youth who feel seen and heard have reduced instances of self-harm. And so as a library, as an institution, as a community center, it is our responsibility to make sure that our community feels reflected in our space and also has the opportunity to understand other points of view. Palaya Lozada says that doesn't mean a family shouldn't decide what's appropriate for their own kids. 
But what is not right is for them to dictate what other families should read and other families should be exposed to. Nearly 40% more books were challenged last year than in 2021. But Palaya Lozada says these numbers are self-reported and likely underrepresent the total. Yet a library association poll shows a majority of Americans don't believe in banning books. Tilda Wilson, NPR News, Washington. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 25 minutes on All Things Considered on WBUR, a new study finds that when people who are pregnant get COVID, their male children have a greater risk of subtle neurodevelopmental issues. And coming up next, Botswana has one of the last thriving herds of elephants, but they're a menace to rural farmers. One potential solution, safari drives for local school kids. We'll hop on board. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. A mixed Monday closing on Wall Street. The Dow rose two-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly one-tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq ended up losing ground almost three-tenths of a percent. Eight Massachusetts Bed, Bath & Beyond locations are expected to close. The housewares retail chain announced yesterday it filed for bankruptcy protection and will wind down operations. It closed nine locations in Massachusetts earlier this year, among the others to shut their doors, Bed and Bath stores in Braintree, Danvers, Hingham, and Somerville. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. In the forecast, look for clouds moving in overnight tonight. Should be just about 43 degrees tonight. Then for tomorrow, thick clouds again up in the mid-50s once again. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Block. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's one of the biggest controversies around preserving the world's wildlife, the conflict between local farmers and the animals that destroy their crops. Botswana in southern Africa is home to one of the last thriving herds of wild elephants. But they can be a menace to rural villagers who live on dollars a day. And the encounters are often violent, sometimes deadly. But in the village of Habu, Let's go. Respect a nonprofit Respect is trying to change that dynamic by organizing safari drives for local school kids. NPR's Nareet Eisenman joined their trip. The kids, all sixth graders from Habu Primary, are gathered around open top safari trucks. One of the guides, speaking in Botswana's Tswana language, asks, Which animal are you most hoping to see? Tau, they say in Tswana. The lion. But the focus of this field trip is actually an animal these kids are a lot more familiar with. 
elephants. Anybody else raise of hands? I ask, who's had a personal encounter with an elephant? The hands go up. And their stories point up why this field trip feels necessary. Every kid's experience has been awful. A tall boy named Fortune Kalaf comes forward. Even though he's so shy, he squeezes his eyes shut as he speaks. Fortune says his family grows maize and pumpkins on their land. And the elephants are always coming in to eat it, ruining the crop before they can harvest it. Last year, his uncle went after the elephants with a gun. Then a girl with a grave expression steps up. My name is Lorato. Lorato Endrick says she was visiting her grandmother in a nearby town a few months ago when she heard screams. People say, elephant, elephant. A large male had wandered directly past the house. Lorato watched as her uncle, who had an intellectual disability, approached it, and the elephant attacked. Took him, threw him, hit the house. People were screaming, The elephant is killing somebody. The elephant is killing somebody. He was dead in minutes. Botswana is home to the world's largest population of elephants. But their habitat is shrinking, and clashes like that are rising. Who wants to sit at the front? Who wants to sit at the front, guys? Soon the kids are speeding through the flat scrubland. Today's safari drive is about trying to see elephants in a different light. They dodge an acacia tree's thorny branches. The girl, Laratu, shakes the leaves out of her hair. Habu is at the gateway to Botswana's glamorous safari lodges. But the village couldn't feel more removed from that. There are no paved roads here, no shops, no electricity, and almost no jobs. Most people survive on crops that they grow in their gardens and a few cattle that they raise at these posts in the wilderness surrounding the village. Trust. 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 We turn onto a vast tract of land held by a community trust. This is trust of Habu. The same nonprofit that's arranged this drive is also helping Habu to eventually develop its very own safari business on the land. This most likely we see the animals here. In fact, the nonprofit, it's called Wild and Trust, is working with the Habu community to pilot all sorts of efforts to make it easier for people here to coexist with wildlife and even make a living off of it. A woman named Leslie McNutt approaches the truck with some water bottles. Hey guys! She's a Canadian anthropologist who co-founded Wild and Trust. How are we doing? McNutt says that after decades of working in Botswana, she's concluded that even when people have economic incentives for safeguarding wildlife, that's often not enough. What really makes a difference is when people also have empathy for the animals, the kind of appreciation that comes from really studying them. That's why Wild and Trust has created an extensive curriculum that's now taught in every primary school across Botswana. But the drive is the cherry on the sundae. McNutt says seeing animals this way... It's the aha moment. It's, it's a trigger. It's a switch. It's the first time it's like, wow, because they're impressive. They're amazing. And the awe is certainly there when the kids spot the first wild animal. Fortune, the shy boy, is especially transformed. His reserve melts away as he shouts out the names of the creatures bounding past. An impala, or maybe a springbok, says another kid. Definitely impala, says Fortune. 
He's always loved animals, especially rabbits. They're so clever, he says. The wildlife is coming at them fast and furious now. But what about the main object of the safari, the elephants? The guide spots some fresh tracks. Yeah, on the right-hand side, at the bottom. Evidence of an elephant that was here. So, Lorato purses her lips. Her mother is one of the teachers at the school, so her house is a step up from the other kids. It's brick instead of mud-walled. Still, she dreams of getting away from Habu. So boring, she says. She leans forward and taps the guide on the shoulder. What is the safety when you see an elephant when you're going by foot, not a car? Yeah, stand still, don't run. Soon after, the kids get to put that advice into practice, when they pull up to a water hole for a lollipop break. We're going to give you guys snacks. Suddenly, a huge elephant ambles over. Elephant. Oh, wow. And starts to drink. Really close by. The guide motions for silence. I want you to come down one by one, but very quietly. Lorato is the last to climb out. I'm a little bit scared. The guide walks closer to the elephant. Hey, let's go together, slowly. The kids creeping behind him. Then he motions for a halt. So you should never give elephant your scent. The key, he says, is to remain upwind. He picks up some sand from the ground and slowly releases it. It will show you the wind is blowing that way. Then he gets to the heart of the lesson. If you approach the elephant this way, he says, it's a calm animal. We are still here. And how long have we been here watching this elephant? Then, as the kids suck on their lollipops, he starts to point out all the cool features of this elephant. Two finger-like projections at the tip of the trunk. How its ears are the shape of Africa. Right at the bottom, this is where Botswana is. On the ride back to school, the atmosphere is giddy. It's been a very fun day. So, what was the takeaway for the kids? The next day, back at school, I meet up with Fortune, the shy boy whose family is constantly losing crops to elephants. Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. He says watching that elephant on the safari changed his thinking. He'd never seen an elephant so calm. I was surprised that if you don't provoke it, it doesn't want to harm you, he says. Now he feels sorry for elephants. He wonders, maybe we could dig water holes for them away from our fields? Because he still doesn't see elephants and people coexisting in Habu. Most people, when they see them, they'll want to set the dogs on them. But he is going to talk to his own family. Tell them, the next time elephants come, let's not do that. And uh, and do you think they will listen to you? I mean, you're a kid. He nods. My mother will, he says. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, checking the forecast. Clouds and sunshine taking turns this afternoon and evening. Overnight tonight, clouds thicken down around 43 degrees for low. Tomorrow, overcast for much of the day, not too much milder than today has been. Still in the mid-50s, could see a generous share of sunshine on Wednesday, closer to 60 degrees. 55 degrees now in the Boston area at 530. This is 90.9. 9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Tucker Carlson and Fox News have, quote, agreed to part ways. That's from a company statement today. Carlson's primetime show had the largest audience in all of cable news. He embraced controversy with his statements on LGBTQ rights, migrants, even race. Carlson's departure follows a huge defamation lawsuit Fox settled last week over lies the network and its hosts, as well as reporters, told about the 2020 presidential election. Here's NPR media correspondent. David Falkenflick. Fox has uh, said this was mutual decision, but it sure looks like a defenestration uh, forced by Fox. You know, this comes immediately after this huge lawsuit settlement for over three quarters of a billion dollars for defamation from Dominion voting systems, but also this current lawsuit from Carlson's former top booking producer, that is the person who gets guests on the show, who alleged that Carlson's workplace was rife with sexism and harassment. That's NPR's David Folkenflik. New polling out from Harvard's Institute of Politics finds President Biden's job approval has slipped among young people between the ages of 18 and 29. As NPR's Elena Moore tells us, the country's youngest voting bloc is known for its historically high levels of political engagement. Just 36% of young Americans say they approve of Biden's work in office, which is a five-point drop from last year. And about one in four say they support his handling of the economy and gun violence, two top issues for the age group, which is made up of younger millennials and members of Generation Z. According to the poll, confidence in the Supreme Court is also low. Just one-third say they trust the court to, quote, do the right thing. That's a 10-point drop among all young voters surveyed since 2018 and a 12-point drop specifically among young women. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Some members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are spearheading a national campaign to overhaul the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Senators Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley helped launch a 20-day bus tour today. It calls for passage of bills to reform the court, including ones to expand it to 13 members and impose a code of ethics on the justices. Citing recent articles about alleged ethics disclosure improprieties involving Justice Clarence Thomas, Markey says the court is broken. Our most fundamentally held freedoms are under siege, and it will only get worse. We must take action now to rebuild an expanded, fair, and ethical Supreme Court. Markey says the American people have lost faith and respect for the court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Another North Shore community is seeking, seeing an uptick in coyote sightings. Officials in Salem say the animals have been comfortable approaching humans and their pets. Wildlife biologist Susan McCarthy says the culprit is food. 
We know that there are folks out there that may have good intentions, um, but they are intentionally feeding coyotes and it's resulting in this sort of habituation of coyotes and, and kind of a, a little bit of that a loss of that natural fear that, that coyotes have of people. McCarthy says unintentional food sources such as pet food and open compost containers can be removed to deter coyote interactions. In nearby Nahant, the town is contracted with federal officials to help kill coyotes that have become aggressive toward humans. The MBTA has announced a series of service changes on every subway line and some commuter rail lines next month. They'll happen on weekday evenings and weekends. No lines will fully shut down, though. Shuttle buses will be used at most of the affected stops. These diversions will allow crews to complete track work. Some orange and green line service changes will allow for ongoing demolition of the government center garage. More information can be found on the MBTA's website. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. It's been a pretty nice afternoon and evening. Clouds rush in overnight tonight, down around 43 degrees for a low. For tomorrow, could be cloudy for most of the day, not a lot milder than today, right around the mid-50s once again. Could see a generous share of sunshine moving in on Wednesday, closer to the 60-degree mark. 53 degrees now in Boston. The time is 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Supreme Court has been in the headlines a lot in recent weeks. First, there's the legal tug-of-war over access to the drug Mifepristone, which could put the issue of abortion before the court again. And then, of course, we have the recent revelations about the court's most conservative justice, Clarence Thomas, who had failed to disclose luxury gifts and deals worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. With all of that going on, today, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds that Americans have soured on SCOTUS. NPR's Domenico Montanaro joins us now to talk through the numbers and the ethics questions surrounding the court. Hey, Domenico. Hey, glad to be here, Elsa. Glad to have you. Okay, so let's start with the poll. What is it telling us about how people are feeling about the Supreme Court? Well, people are really down on the court. 62% have little to no confidence in it, and 68% say that they're against lifetime appointments. You know, this Mm. level of confidence is the lowest we've seen in the five years since Marist has been asking this question, and it continues a downward trend we've seen of trust and confidence in what was one of the most revered institutions in the country. Well, I imagine that last year's Dobbs ruling, which overturned the right to an abortion, explains a lot of the most recent downward trend Mm -hmm. in confidence. So I'm curious, Domenico, what's the partisan divide that you're seeing in this confidence in the court? Well, just a quarter of Democrats and only 39% of independents say that they have at least a good deal of confidence in the court. But a majority of Republicans do have confidence in the court. Not surprising, considering the many victories this 6-3 conservative majority has delivered for conservatives on really a host of thorny issues. Well, also the ethics issues for Justice Thomas probably have some effect on these numbers that we're seeing, right? What, if anything, is being done about that at the court so far? 
It doesn't appear much at this point at the Supreme Court. You know, it's pretty remarkable considering Thomas did not disclose a plethora of luxury gifts from a conservative Texas billionaire, as well as a property deal for a home Thomas owned where his mother still lives in Georgia. You know, watchdog groups uh, believe Thomas really knew better because he used to disclose these kinds of things for years until an L.A. Times story two decades ago spotlighted his financial disclosures and the kinds of gifts that he'd received. Part of the problem here is that the Supreme Court does not have a code of ethics, and Thomas is claiming he wasn't sure what was supposed to be disclosed. Well, Senate Democrats, I know, have asked the Chief Justice, John Roberts, to testify to try to rectify this. Is there any indication that Roberts will testify? It doesn't seem likely. You know, Roberts uh, instead has referred the request to the secretary of the U.S. Judicial Conference. And the Judicial Conference is this 100-year-old organization that consists of the senior members from each of the courts. And they essentially write the rules of the road for ethics for federal judges. But remember, those rules don't apply to the Supreme Court justices. Here was Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, on Meet the Press on Roberts' non-response response. Well, I don't view that as an official response, and we're still waiting for the Chief Justice uh, to answer my invitation. Uh, I think that's the first step that ought to be taken, that the Supreme Court itself, with its leader, the Chief Justice, uh, make it clear that they are going to bring reform when it comes to ethics to the court uh, and spell out what they're going to do. Yeah, and there's a degree of irony here, Elsa. If mm-hmm. Durbin were to ask for the presiding officer of the judicial conference to testify, that would be none other than Chief Justice John Roberts. Mm-hmm. That's because the Chief Justice in his role basically helps oversee the group. So round and round we go here. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico. You're welcome. This may sound surprising, but there are still a lot of tech job openings in the U.S. We're talking hundreds of thousands of jobs, even as Silicon Valley has been rocked by mass layoffs. To help meet the demand, one program is racing to get more workers into the tech pipeline. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. In the break room of the tech training school, Perscolis, Michael Gomez has something to celebrate. No one run it? He is the latest in his cohort to get his A-plus certification. That's a widely recognized credential issued by the trade association CompTIA for IT support and other entry-level tech jobs. Gomez is 44. He's worked in retail as a personal shopper and stylist. But now he's looking to advance in the world. And he says tech is where it is. Plus, he's looking forward to the stability. With my A-plus certification, I can now land a job and not have to necessarily worry about next gig, next client. It's like my next shift is tomorrow and I know I'll be getting paid. Gomez remains undeterred by the layoff announcements from places like Amazon, Google, and Meta. A lot of those layoffs are coming from the big companies, sort of like bigger fish. So me getting my A-plus today, I'm a small fish. So I don't feel like I have those problems in necessarily worry about because there's a lot of startup companies, there's a lot of people doing things every day. And that is reflected in the numbers. Over 315,000 tech jobs are open right now in this country. Clinio Ayala is CEO of Perscolis, a Latin phrase that means for scholars. The nonprofit has 20 campuses around the country, including just outside Washington, D.C. There are more openings now than the talent we're producing as a nation. 
The school is trying to help fill the void, recruiting students from communities that are underrepresented in tech and students without a college education. Ayala points out, with so much of our world online, companies across sectors need tech workers. The truth is that every company is a tech company. In fact, it's estimated that just over half of tech workers are now working outside the traditional tech sector. Students here have taken on jobs in cybersecurity, Java development, and IT support, your basic help desk job. Now, let's go see who is the printer technician. I right, peek in on a here. class taught by Kiana Yarborough, a Perscolis graduate herself. The lesson is all about troubleshooting laser printers. All right, so you see here, this printer can copy, scan, fax, Talk on the phone? Just kidding. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Students pay nothing for the 15-week boot camp style courses here. Funding comes from grants and from corporations who work with Perscolis to develop customized trainings. And while workforce training programs can be a mixed bag, this one appears highly effective at placing students. More than 80% of graduates find full-time work within a year, Ayala says, at a whole range of companies. Deloitte and Touche. J.P. Morgan Chase, Capital One, Tech Systems. Jantel Brandy, who's 38, is actually hoping to stay with her current employer, American Airlines. She's been a gate agent for seven years. As soon as she graduates, she plans to apply for an IT support job there, which would come with better pay. Way better pay. <laughs> it's way better pay. It's basically three times more than what I'm making right now. Clinio Ayala says that's typical of Perscolis graduates. Elizabeth Mabry, who's 23, has been working at a CVS, and before that, at a Barnes and noble. When you think about most retail jobs, a lot of times they pay you based off of like high school level education. That's generally where they stop. Now, Mabry's passion is art. She's been taking some art courses at a community college, but she knows that many creative jobs, like in graphic design, are threatened by AI. I want to make sure I have security, and IT is definitely a secure place to go into. As the students here finish up their coursework and sharpen their resumes, the mass layoff announcements coming from Silicon Valley remain far from the mind. Yeah. Even every day seeing layoff, layoff, layoff. Yeah. I've been studying, studying, studying. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Gomez and his friends are set to graduate on May 12th. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR News. The country's tally of COVID-19 cases includes more than 200,000 people who were pregnant when they got infected. Now, scientists are reporting that boys from those pregnancies may be prone to subtle delays in brain development. Here's NPR's John Hamilton. Before COVID-19 came along, researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital were looking at lots of factors that might affect brain development during pregnancy. Dr. Andrea Edlow says these factors included diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, and even common infections like influenza. When the COVID pandemic started, we pivoted to try to look at fetal brain development and how it might be impacted by maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection. The latest result of that pivot is a study of more than 18,000 infants born at eight hospitals in eastern Massachusetts. About 900 of these babies were born to mothers who contracted COVID while pregnant. Edlow says an analysis of electronic health records found one clear difference. So if a mom had SARS-CoV-2 infection in pregnancy and had a male child, her 12-month-old was 94% more likely 
to have any neurodevelopmental diagnosis. In other words, one-year-old boys from these moms were about twice as likely to have subtle delays in brain development. There was no difference in girls. Edlow says the finding, published in March in the journal JAMA Network Open, is just the latest example of a well-documented sex difference. Male fetuses and male fetal brain development are known to be more vulnerable to maternal infectious exposures during pregnancy. For some reason, the brain of a male fetus is more likely to be affected when a mother's immune system responds to an infection. In the study, this meant boys were more likely to have delays in areas like grasping objects or using language. Those delays can be associated with autism spectrum disorder. But Dr. Roy Perlis says it's hard to make that diagnosis in kids this young. All we can hope to detect at this point are more subtle sorts of things like delays in language and speech and delays in motor milestones. Perlis says some boys may catch up as they get older. I hope these effects go away. You know, I would be far happier if at the two-year and the three-year follow-up, there's no effect. But Perla says even if some of the kids turn out to have autism, the overall risk is still quite low. Most children of moms who have COVID during pregnancy won't have neurodevelopmental consequences, even if there is some increase in risk. COVID-19 is just the latest maternal infection linked to changes in brain development. Influenza, for example, has been tied to a child's risk for both autism and schizophrenia. Kim McAllister, who directs the Center for Neuroscience at the University of California, Davis, says the reason appears to involve certain proteins called cytokines, which regulate the immune system. These are cytokines that are really important for that initial immune response. They make you feel really bad. Some of the cytokines can actually cause fever. And that's a good thing because that's your immune system fighting off the the pathogen. But these cytokines also may affect the placenta and even reach the fetus. McAllister says scientists are just beginning to understand how this may alter a developing brain. There's no doubt from the animal models that there is a link between uh, maternal immune activation, changes in gene expression in the brain, changes in brain development, and long-lasting changes in behaviors. Like language delays and difficulty with social interactions. McAllister says the next step is to figure out why this immune activation affects some fetuses, but not others. We know that most pregnancies are resilient, but we don't know why, and we don't know why some pregnancies are susceptible. When they do know, she says, it may be possible to keep a mom's infection from harming a fetal brain. John Hamilton, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thank you for joining us this evening. Some news just out regarding former President Donald Trump. A prosecutor in Georgia says she will announce between July and September whether the former president will be charged with 2020 election interference in Georgia. This is one of the most closely watched legal cases involving Trump. That story and much more is still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Poor Boston sports fans deprived a single playoff game today. The Celtics get back to their first-round playoff series with Atlanta tomorrow. It'll be Game 5 at the Garden. And then on Wednesday, the Bruins play Game 5 of their series with Florida. Both the Bruins and Celts lead their series three games to one. At least the Red Sox play tonight, 6.35 in Baltimore. Chris Sale will pitch for Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Lots of clouds around tonight. Temperatures about 43 degrees. Tomorrow, scattered showers. Highs in the mid-50s. It's 5.49. 
WBUR supporters include BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu SSW. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, reporting in The Globe and The New York Times details a top Boston chef's alleged abuse of workers. Barbara Lynch is the first chef specifically named for abuse since the public conversation started in earnest a few months ago. Will this be a first step for restaurants across the city? That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Block. And I'm Juana Summers. I want to start by just being honest about something. Figuring out personal finance can feel completely overwhelming for me, even now. I have read tons of books, subscribed to newsletters, listened to podcasts that all claim they want to help people demystify money. And they're all great in theory, but in practice, a lot of those books have just made me feel totally alone or even ashamed for not being further along on my own financial journey. Berna Anat says it doesn't have to feel that way. Since teaching herself about personal finance, she's built a very online career around making the world of money more accessible for everyone. And now she has written a book called Money Out Loud, all the financial stuff no one taught us. You could call her a money influencer, but she calls herself a financial hype woman. She says she wants to be the first one on the dance floor at the wedding, inviting you to start figuring out what's going on with your money. All it takes is that one person to get on the dance floor, do a little robot, do a little bad worm, and then everyone else feels a lot more comfortable to jump in. Everyone is waiting for someone at the table to raise their hand and go, is anyone else freaked out? Is anyone else kind of drowning in debt and don't know how to get out of it? Does anyone else notice that the finance world seems hella male, hella pale, hella stale? And when she said that, hella pale, hella male, and hella stale, I did a bit of a double take and I had to know more. Well, you know, when I say that phrase, the Bay Area in me really pops out, and uh, I I can't apologize for that, born and raised in the Bay Area. But this is the thing, I think, that really compelled me to jump into the financial space. You know, I'm I'm there in my mid-20s with $12,000 of credit card debt, almost $50,000 of student loans, and people are like, oh, you're just getting into personal finance? Amazing. You should read this book. You should read this blog. You should listen to this podcast. I'm like, great. I have all my tabs open. Every single one of those tabs, every single resource is from an older white dude. Hmm. And I, Juana, am not an older white dude. I like to think I'm a little far. (laughs) I'm a little, if you couldn't hear it in my voice, I am not an older white dude. And it struck me immediately that, you know, it's not that this advice that they were giving was bad. It was all sound advice mostly, but it just was not relatable to me. A lot of what they said came from a level of privilege that I have never experienced, from a level of finance ease that I I don't understand as a beginner. And that's what made me look around and go, this doesn't make any sense because everybody is affected by money. You also make the point of being very explicit about the fact that we are all figuring this all out as part of a system where marginalized communities are often left out that is not set up for us to succeed. And I don't know that I've ever read another book that talks about money that calls that out so clearly. Why was that important for you to be so direct about? I I wanted to come right out the gate and let folks understand that there are forces at work that have been at work way before you were born, generations back, 
that were set up against you and your ancestors and the people who came before you. There are systems that were meant to keep many marginalized folks poor, unhoused, living under wages. Just there are so many systems at play meant to keep you, quote unquote, bad at money. And yet we are raised and we see so much financial education material that is intent on making us believe that we are 100% of the problem. That's just simply not true. I think once we confront things like the truth about capitalism, the truth about systemic discrimination, then we can be a little easier on ourselves. You give folks some quick and dirty advice on topics like budgeting, saving, and investing. So this might get hard, but I'm wondering if we can do a little bit of a lightning round here. And I'd like to go through each one of those areas one by one and ask you to pick just one piece of advice you would give someone who is starting off from completely zero and just trying to figure this out. And I want to start with budgeting. Oh, my God. Budgeting, you can't see me right now, but my hands are in the air because budgeting is my favorite topic. It's an ugly word for a beautiful thing. My one tip with budgeting is when you're making separate bank accounts or separate buckets for the different categories in your life, name it whatever you want. Use song lyrics, use celebrity names, use former pet names. I cannot stress enough how important it is for you to feel personally connected to your budgeting categories or to your bank accounts. One, because it it makes that financial section of your life feel real to you, but also it just makes it more fun. All right. How about saving? Free savings calculators online. You need to know exactly how much money you'd like to save for a thing, for a goal, for a trip, and when you'd like to save that by. Then you can plug in also the amount of money that you make, the amount of uh, bills that you pay, things like that. You can plug in numbers that you know. A free savings calculator will tell you exactly what it will take every single month to reach your savings goal. It almost gives it to you like a bill. It takes all the guesswork, all the math work out of this vague savings thought and gives you something to actually work around. A free savings calculator will set you free. All right, Bernadette, last one. How about investing? I like to invest like a lazy girl. I invest like a tired person. Because look, for those who are approaching investing for the first time, I like to really stress, investing is not about rocket ship gains and putting a bunch of money into the market. It's about opening your first retirement account, whether that's a 401k, a Roth IRA, you know, putting a bunch of funds in a retirement account. It's about investing small amounts of consistent money and making it like a bill in your life and just boom. It's like a dance. I know you can't see me, but I'm sort of like sticking my head out. It's like a dance move. Bah, little money, boom, little more, ah, little bit, boom. Consistently for a long time to take care of your future self. Do not listen to the finance dude bros that are giving you heart palpitations about what you should be investing in. Go slow, go little. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Berna, I want to end this conversation on a high note because you talk about something else that's really important in this book, and that's about celebrating your money wins, your financial successes. So I want to ask you, how do you celebrate your money wins? I celebrate my money wins by dancing. So I have a playlist on Spotify. If you look up the title of the book, Money Out Loud, or if you look up Hey Berna, it's my money motivation station, over 100 songs that are exclusively about money. 
I'm a big fan of the solo financial dance party. So I dance around, and when I'm dancing around, I'm thinking about what it took to get me there. The ancestors that would be proud of me in the room and would be like booty shaking a little bit with me. I'm thinking about the privileges that I have been given to be able to afford the bill I just paid or you know the, the deposit I just made into my savings. I have a little solo dance party. And then I text somebody. I go to one of my money friends and I say, hey, I just did this thing clap for me. So I, I celebrate by myself. I have a dance party. And then I bring people into the party to celebrate with me. It's it's all community and booty shaking over here. <laughs> Berna Anat, her new book is Money Out Loud, All the Financial Stuff No One Taught Us. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Juana. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio, and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Shuttle buses will replace the MBTA's blue line tonight and for the next three nights. The shutdown on the subway line will run from 8 p.m. tonight to the end of service each night. The same closure will happen next Monday night through Thursday night. It's to accommodate track work. In the forecast, lots of clouds moving in overnight tonight. Could be a little bit damp. The outside chance of showers lows about 42 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds again. Highs in the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. FairbankandPerry.com I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. A surprise announcement from Fox News today. It's cutting the cord with its primetime star host. We want to thank Tucker Carlson for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a long-term contributor. Today is Monday, April 24th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That wasn't the only big headline in cable. Within an hour of the announcement of Tucker Carlson's firing, CNN's longtime host Don Lemon got his walking papers. What's behind the news? Coming up. We'll hear about President Biden's strategy for his anticipated run for president. Also, more than 2,100 people may be fraudulently working as nurses across the U.S. after they allegedly bought fake degrees at a Florida-based scheme. Authorities are working to track them all down. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he's looking at ways to get diplomats back to Sudan as quickly as possible. The U.S. evacuated the embassy over the weekend. More from NPR's Michelle Kellman. Secretary Blinken says it was a difficult choice to suspend operations at the embassy, but he says the violence in Sudan posed an unacceptable risk. He says dozens of American citizens are still trying to leave Sudan, and the department is trying to offer them advice. In addition, um We're looking at what options we have to perhaps resume diplomatic presence uh, in Sudan, including in in, in Port Sudan. That's something that we're, uh, we're looking at. He calls that challenging and says some convoys trying to reach Port Sudan have been looted and attacked. He's still pushing for a ceasefire, as is Kenya's foreign minister, who met with Blinken in Washington. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. President Biden met today with a group of Tennessee lawmakers who made news when they were expelled or accused of bringing dishonor to the legislature with their protests against gun violence. Quickly dubbed the Tennessee Three, two of the members, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, both black were expelled. While Gloria Johnson narrowly survived an expulsion vote, Biden praised all three for taking a stand. What the Republican legislature did was shocking, it was undemocratic, and it was um, without any precedent. But you turn it around very quickly. After their expulsions, both men were quickly reinstated by their respective home jurisdictions, with Republican Governor Bill Lee promising a special session to discuss gun reform. The lawmakers led the protest days after a shooting at a Christian school in Nashville that left three children and three school staffers dead. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll found confidence in the Supreme Court has hit a new low. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports it comes as the court is again weighing in on abortion rights. The poll finds 62 percent of respondents have little to no confidence in the court. Marist has been asking this question for five years, and this is the lowest level of support recorded. The survey of almost 1,300 people also found nearly two-thirds oppose laws banning a medication abortion using drugs like mifepristone, which is used in early stages of pregnancies. Most people said they're also against allowing judges to overturn the Food and Drug Administration approval of prescription drugs, and two-thirds oppose lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court, and that includes majorities of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Well, inflation is eaten into everyone's budget. One area that allows for a bit of extra income is the reward from banks to savers. The average interest rate on a 24-month CD, a common savings product, is now 4.81%. That's significantly above last year's one8 On Wall Street, a mix closed today. The Dow was up 66 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is applauding the appointment of Patrick Lavin as the chief safety officer for the Mass Department of Transportation. Governor Moore Healy named Lavin to the post today. He held similar roles for transit systems in Washington, D.C. and New York City. On Radio Boston today, Mayor Wu said it's key to have someone whose job is to improve the MBTA's safety record. Safety is the foundation of people having any sort of trust in, in being in being willing to come and ride the T. And so we've had far too many incidents in the last several months and years that just give people that extra sense of pause. 
Lavin will be in charge of safety issues for all modes of transportation in the state, including rail, bus, and highway. He starts in two weeks. The man accused of crashing an SUV into an Apple store in Hingham last year has pleaded not guilty in Plymouth County Superior Court. 53-year-old Bradley Ryan faces charges, including second-degree murder. Today in court, prosecutors say he accelerated up to 60 miles an hour and did not apply the brakes before the crash. The collision killed a construction worker, Kevin Bradley. Ryan is free on bail. Today, the court ruled that he must not operate a motor vehicle and must wear a GPS monitor while he awaits trial. Ryan claims his foot was stuck on the car's accelerator. We have more now on NPR's top story, the conflict in Sudan. Relatives of an Ashland woman who was trapped on Sunday with her daughters say they have not been in touch with the woman in roughly 24 hours. Trillian Clifford and her 18-month-old have been taking shelter in their apartment for 10 days in Sudan since the fighting broke out there. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the government is trying to get Americans in Sudan in touch with the embassy so diplomatic officials will know their locations. I worry about a mother or child uh, who are in this terrible circumstance. Uh, And I know that our embassy and our, our government is doing everything we can to protect them. The U.S. State Department has announced today that both sides in the Sudanese conflict have agreed to implement a 72-hour ceasefire. It starts at midnight tonight. The city of Worcester could soon pay its officers to wear body cameras. The city council is considering a salary ordinance that would make unionized police officers who wear the cameras eligible for a $1,300 stipend. City manager Eric Batista is recommending the city pass the ordinance. Worcester launched its body camera program in February. Red Sox road trip continues tonight at Camden Yards as the Sox face the Baltimore Orioles in a three-game series. Chris Sale does the pitching honors. The Orioles and Sox both rank in the league's top 10 in scoring. Tonight, lots of clouds around, maybe some isolated showers later on. Lows about 43 degrees. And for tomorrow, some scattered showers. High temperatures in the mid-50s. Could see sunshine in full force by midweek. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Not one, but two of the top stars in cable news are out. Here's what Fox News announced about its best-known host earlier today. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. Then, not even an hour later, CNN said it was parting ways with morning anchor Don Lemon. NPR media correspondent David Volkenflik is sprinting to keep us up to date on all of this, and he joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, let's start with Fox News. I mean, it's the most watched cable network. We're arguably talking about its biggest star here. What are they saying about Carlson's departure exactly? Not much beyond what you heard Harris Faulkner say there just moments ago in your introduction. Uh, They, you know, thank him for his time there. They're saying that uh, his last show was Friday, that uh, there'll be a rotating uh, series of Fox personalities filling in at 8 p.m. To give you an idea of how big a surprise this was, Mm -hmm. he said, I'll see you Monday uh, to his viewers at the end of his sign-off last week. And then today, moments before Faulkner made that announcement to Fox's viewers, they were promoting his show tonight. So then why is this happening? Do we know? And do we know why right now? 
Well, look, I think it's fair to note that this happens basically six days after this epic three quarters of a billion dollar settlement with a, a election tech company called Dominion Voting Systems mm-hmm. uh, for defamation. But Carlson, while he featured in that lawsuit, wasn't by any means the worst offender there. In fact, uh, he had real contempt for uh, former President Trump, who was peddling a lot of these lies of election fraud back in 2020. Documents show he's withering contempt for his colleagues, for Trump. Uh, There is another lawsuit that may be more relevant. It's filed by his former chief booker that is a producer who brings guests on the show. Her name's Abby Grossberg. She alleged that his workplace for his show was rife with sexism, rife with misogyny, that she was paid less because she was a female. An executive acknowledged that, uh, that Nancy Pelosi was depicted in a sexist way. And she said that he used a vulgar epithet, like the most, I think, vile epithet you can use for a woman in describing one of Trump's key allies, Sidney Powell. And let me say, although it was a shocking term, I wasn't totally surprised by that. I had heard him use this term getting off a van at the Republican National Convention in 2016. I said to to Carlson, Tucker, what are you doing? And he said, what? She is. It was about someone else. I was it was pretty appalled in the moment. So what's Abby Grossberg's response to Carlson's firing? Uh, Her lawyer says uh, that this is a vindication of everything that she has alleged uh, and that this is an important move towards justice and that she is uh, she is right to have made these allegations against Carlson as well as against Fox News, which she said pressured her, her its legal team had pressured her not to acknowledge uh, the environment in which she felt she was working at Fox. <laughs> I, I would say I reached out to Carlson for comment as well, as well as some of our colleagues, and that we have not heard back from him. He has okay. not made any public comment. Okay, let's turn real quick to CNN and Don Lemon. He is a longtime, well-known name at the network. He used to have his own primetime show. And today, Lemon, he tweeted that he was stunned by the news that he no longer had a job there. What led to CNN's decision? Do we know? Well, we don't know precisely what the predicate was, but we sure have a whole lot of breadcrumbs that led to this moment. Uh, You had a number of instances in which it was seen that Lemon behaved uh, in a demeaning and belittling way towards women. He then made a comment uh, towards uh, Nikki Haley, the Republican presidential candidate, saying she was past her prime. He was asked to undergo sensitivity training. He's been such a star. He saw himself as the star of the morning show in the morning. And ultimately, CNN is asserting himself itself over what had been one of its most important figures. That is NPR's David Folkenflik. Thank you so much, David. You bet. On April 25th, 2019, Joe Biden made a long-awaited announcement. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Now the president is widely expected to mark the four-year anniversary of that moment with a repeat announcement tomorrow, officially declaring his run for re-election in 2024. Some of the challenges for his campaign may feel familiar, but there is no denying how different this will be from 2020. Evan Osnos covered that 2020 run extensively for his book, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. He's also a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thanks, Melissa. When you think about this upcoming presumed campaign by Joe Biden, uh, what do you expect the main case will be that he will be making for a second term? Well, I think you should expect him, as presidents do in a moment like this, to tout some of the things that they've done well. You're going to hear him, I expect, talk about unemployment, which is at a very low level, some of the lowest in decades. And of course, they've had legislative wins, things like combating climate change or reducing drug prices. 
But I think you're also going to hear one big message, which is about what he describes as finishing the job, which is sort of a code for saying, look, we have passed some bills, but we have a very polarized political atmosphere and they could be rolled back. Which is interesting because four years ago, Joe Biden said he would be a transition candidate. What did he mean by that? Yeah, I think a lot of people took that to mean he was signaling that he would only run for one term. I think if you actually talk to him and his advisors about it at the time, what they said was that we would open this administration up to a more diverse roster of talent in terms of race, in terms of gender. And if you look at the numbers, that is what they've done. It is more diverse than the last two administrations. If you look at the judges that they have proposed, that does not address the issue that a lot of people are concerned about, and that is his age. And what he has said to people is, watch me and decide for yourself. And I think people will be watching and making a judgment about whether they think he has the vigor and the energy for this. And important to note that this will be a very different campaign than in 2020, which was in the COVID years. This will be much more on the ground, a lot more travel, a lot more face-to-face interactions. Yeah, that was really a campaign like we've never had before. I mean, he did a lot of it from the back porch, from the basement. That was easier on him in some respects. You can control things more easily, obviously. You can retake your videos. But it also deprived him of one of the things that has made him a successful politician, which is retail politics. I mean, he is known in the business for having this inexhaustible appetite for the handshake, for talking to people one-on-one. And I think what you should expect is that they're going to use the apparatus of the presidency to get him out into the world in visible ways, but controllable ways, so that it's not quite as grueling as a full-fledged campaign. When you think about a potential matchup between President Biden and the former president, Donald Trump, what do you think the Biden camp would need to focus on if that does come to pass? Well, I can tell you what a lot of Americans will say to that, which is, ugh. I think people felt like the 2020 campaign was pretty grueling and they wanted to see some new faces. But there is an inescapable reality that Donald Trump, as of today, is the leading Republican frontrunner. And Joe Biden is the only person who has ever beaten him in an election. And then, in effect, and his administration will tell you as much, they felt like they beat him again in 2022 in the midterms. So I think that one of the challenges for him is going to be signaling to Democrats, look, I know that you're ready for a new generation, but first, we have to get past what has become this persistent and inescapable fact of our political lives, and that is Donald Trump. And in terms of issues that you think President Biden will be centering in his campaign? I'm thinking about, obviously, the economy, abortion, gun violence. How do those play into into his strategy, do you think? In the midterm elections in 2022, there was a really interesting lesson learned, which is that even though a lot of the pundits and the public were saying they should be talking about the economy, talking about inflation, that in fact, Americans were concerned about real threats to democracy and about the threat to abortion rights. I think fundamentally, you're going to hear him make the case that what the Republican Party has become at the moment is more extreme than Americans are comfortable with, even conventional Republican voters. And I think running beneath this announcement by Joe Biden is him saying to people, let's remember just what it was like under a Trump presidency. That's Evan Osnos. He is staff writer at The New Yorker and author of the 2020 book, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Evan, thanks so much. You're welcome. 
When North American actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney bought a fifth division soccer team in Wales two years ago, its fans were hoping for a Hollywood moment. After the team won on Saturday, they got one. Wrexham are promoted. They have their storybook ending. That's right, the club Wrexham secured promotion to a higher league of English soccer. Next season, they'll play in the fourth division for the first time in 15 years. Here's McElhenney after the match. Well, I think we can hear how it feels to the town, and that's what's most important to us. I think this is a moment of catharsis for them and celebration, and for us to be welcomed into their community and to be welcomed into this experience has been the honor of my life. In 2021, the actor known for the TV show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia paired with Ryan Reynolds to acquire one of the oldest soccer clubs in the UK. They filmed their journey in the docuseries Welcome to Wrexham. McElhenney described it to NPR's Michelle Martin last year. I just felt a kindred spirit to them. And I thought, man, if I could tell their story correctly and honor and respect them, I think I could get people to watch it all over the world. And that seems to be the case. In order to bring their team up from the depths of English soccer, the new owners needed to upgrade the roster. Among the players they brought in was a previously retired top-level goalkeeper turned media personality named Ben Foster. You don't get many of these moments. I think this is my third promotion in my whole 20-year career. And it feels so damn good. At the age of 40, the ripe old age of 40, that was about as good as it gets. Genuinely, that means so much to me. This may only be the start for Wrexham's new owners. They hope to eventually be promoted three more divisions all the way up to the Premier League. Now that would be a Hollywood ending. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up this evening on Marketplace on WBUR, changing the climate story from despair to possibility. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater. With How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song. Starting May 3rd, tickets at MRT.org. A mixed Monday closing on Wall Street. The Dow rose two-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly one-tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq ended up losing ground almost three-tenths of a percent. Santander Bank plans to close 16 branches in the state. The Boston Business Journal reports five of the branches will be in Boston, including downtown, Back Bay, the North End, South End, and Brigham Circle. Officials with the bank say the closures are the result of more customers turning to online banking. The journal reports Santander will have about 150 branches in the state after the shutdowns. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, a GOP congressman has a proposal for how to deal with the country's growing debt. Also, actor Rain Wilson from The Office on his book Soul Boom about spirituality. Listen again tomorrow morning. Clouds thicken tonight, down around 43 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, overcast for much of the day, still in the mid-50s. Could see a generous amount of sunshine on Wednesday, closer to 60 degrees. This is WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. In Florida, more nursing schools are under investigation in connection to a $100 million scheme to sell fake nursing diplomas. Federal investigators initially zeroed in on three schools, and now the state is looking into seven others. As Peter Hayden reports, officials in all 50 states are working to track down thousands of allegedly fraudulent nurses. Inside a hospital room, a patient has got a huge gash on her forehead and blood trickling down into her left eye. Oh my God, what's happening? What's happening is a simulation. The patient is a high-tech mannequin, and she's surrounded by a half-dozen third-year nursing students in navy blue scrubs. Uh, Students, say hi. Hello. This is a typical day at the Clinical Skills Simulation Center at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. For more than four decades, this public institution has been training nurses in the science of caring and treatment. Cindiana Echeverry is an emergency room nurse and the assistant director of this lab. She says these simulations are one tool educators use to equip these future nurses with the skills they'll need to do the job. Inserting catheters to get urine, um, blood draws, something as simple as opening a box and pulling the fluid. If they don't see it, they've never done it. For decades, nursing students have attended highly regarded and board-certified schools like FAU. But thousands of other nurses now practicing around the country didn't do it. As in, they didn't go to nursing school. No classrooms, no clinicals, no nothing. According to federal investigators, they just bought fake nursing degrees instead for around $15,000 each, then used those credentials as a shortcut to obtain state nursing licenses. The feds say more than 2,100 fraudulent nurses may be working in the U.S. So far, they've been located in nearly a dozen states. Mackenzie LaPointe is the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. When we talk about a nurse's education and credentials, shortcut is not a word we want to use. In January, the Justice Department charged 25 people in five states connected to the alleged scheme. The investigation found evidence that between 2016 and 2021, the defendants sold more than 7,600 phony diplomas from three formerly accredited South Florida nursing schools. Siena College and Sacred Heart International Institute in Broward County and the Palm Beach School of Nursing. So this is it, 2695 North Military Trail in West Palm Beach. It is a strip mall. There's a wig store, a little cell phone shop, a Hebrew Pentecostal church, and a Dollar General. And there's also a little chiropractor shop right in the corner. This was the home of the former Palm Beach School of Nursing. Court documents show that in 2021, An undercover FBI employee went into an office in Fort Lauderdale and was offered an associate's degree in the science of nursing for $16,000. The diploma and transcripts arrived less than two weeks later. 
from Palm Beach School of Nursing, showing a 3.4 grade point average. To have someone that has never attended nursing school taking care of you or your loved one is terrifying. It's truly a public safety issue. This is Nurse Erica. She's a registered nurse and a vocal advocate for nurses on social media. We're withholding her last name because she's been the target of harassment. The three South Florida schools are now closed, and the defendants face up to 20 years in prison. Of the 7,600 students federal authorities say purchased fake nursing credentials, more than a quarter were able to obtain state medical licenses. Now there's a nationwide search underway to find them. The feds know who they are. Authorities gave their names to all 50 state boards of nursing. Now it's their job to investigate and take action against any of the nurses in their states. I compared notes with Nurse Erica. 26 in Delaware. One in Kentucky. Multiple in Texas. 22 in Georgia. Arizona has admitted to about 10. And the list goes on. Federal prosecutors say the three Florida schools were once properly certified and graduated students using legitimate training. But at some point, according to authorities, those schools began accepting payments in exchange for backdated nursing credentials without a student stepping foot into a classroom. More than 900 New York nurses who studied at the Florida schools have been asked by state officials to prove their credentials. A lot of states, in particular Florida, are being radio silent about this entire issue, and that is very concerning. The Florida Department of Health did not respond to multiple interview requests for this story. Washington state has been transparent about its search. We knew that this was large. We knew that it was sophisticated. And we knew that we needed to take action. Paula Meyer is executive director of the Washington State Nursing Care Quality Assurance Commission. It identified 150 people, either nurses or applicants, who had graduated from the three Florida schools. Some of those people had legitimate degrees. But with others, there were red flags, especially with some of the transcripts. Some of them didn't have the seal. Some of them didn't have the address of the school. Some of them had different fonts on them. So the commission has been investigating each case. And that takes time. So far in Washington, 17 nurses have had their licenses rescinded. In Georgia... Five nurses under scrutiny say they plan to fight to keep their licenses. They contend their credentials are legitimate. Attorney Hannah Williams, a nurse herself, is representing them. My clients wish to be differentiated from individuals who fraudulently obtained their degrees, and they are hopeful that there will be a fair investigation that allows them to tell their side of the story. There is one group of people in a mighty rush to rip the Band-Aid off this whole scandal. Nurses. The folks that bought those nursing degrees should go to jail. People need to go to jail. Straight to jail. Immediate jail. That's a sample of the exasperation nurses posted in videos to social media. Federal authorities say the students who allegedly bought diplomas won't be criminally charged. Regina Callion is a registered nurse in Ohio and a nurse educator. The public for decades have respected us, have valued us to be honest and truthful. We're the top, most trusted profession. Nobody could touch us. That has changed. Why? 
because the public now has this idea that a lot of nurses take shortcuts. Officials indicate many of the students that purchased degrees in the alleged scheme were Haitian-American or African immigrants. Are you the real nurse or are you the fake nurse? Somebody did say that to me. Dr. Gwen Randall is a nurse anesthetist in South Florida and a member of the National Black Nurses Association. She says transparency by state boards of nursing could help allay some of that patient anxiety. Federal authorities say the investigation has found no harm caused by any suspect nurses to patients so far. For NPR News, I'm Peter Hayden in West Palm Beach, Florida. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. No playoff action for the Bruins or the Celtics tonight. Celts will be at the Garden tomorrow for Game 5 of their first-round playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. Then the Bruins return to the Garden Wednesday for Game 5 of their series with the Florida Panthers. Both the Celts and Bruins lead their respective series three games to one. No rest for the Red Sox, though. This evening, Chris Sale gets back on the mound for the Sox as they start up the series in Baltimore. The game starts in just about five minutes. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass, advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com slash WBUR. And BG Catering Concepts, Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com.